Welcome to episode 18 of the Permaculture Pimpcast, the only pimpcast out there where we discuss permaculture from a pragmatic point of view. Folks, I got to say I'm pretty excited today. We're going to have our first ever guest. Um, Before we get into that, I want to make sure everybody out there, if you're listening to us, check us out on the Fountain app. Also, I want to cast everybody's attention to that new platform out there, freesteading.com. If you're not there, you want to be. Folks, everybody out there that's been hitting me up forever and a day about, hey, where do we go to do business with one another? How do we find out where events are going on? How do we know about other permaculture designers that are in our neighborhood? How do we know about other people that are in our neighborhood that support this way of life? How do you know about all that? Well, you go to freesteading.com. Like I said, folks, as I said before in the YouTube channel, for those of you checking this out, you'd likely listen to us on the YouTube channel as well. I've talked about it before how if we are going to create these platforms in in which we, we basically take out the bigs, bring in the littles, people like us, we're going to have to do it. And this is one of the many ways I know that we can ultimately get there. So check it out at freesteading.com. And also check us out on the app I told you about, because that way you can tip a pimp. All right, y'all. So here I am in this studio, high atop Billy's Jungle Palace of Love, and remotely in another location, I'm about to talk to a guy that's been a big inspiration in my life. He's a good friend of mine, and he just happens to be on the very opposite coast right now. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to introduce you to a guy you don't yet know, but you're going to want to. His name is Eric Sider. How you doing, my man? I'm doing good, man. I'm feeling very honored and uh, a little intimidated to be your first guest. No, man. The the (laughs) honor and the pleasure is all mine because, folks, what you don't know is Eric actually inspired this podcast, or Pimpcast, rather. Um, He came up with a name. He's... This man is coming up with more ideas than you can possibly imagine, and he's kind of one of those unsung heroes in the background. I've referred to him often on the YouTube channel. In fact, when people hear me talk about Eric Sider, this is the guy I'm talking about. This is the one you ought to be checking out. So, Eric, these days, uh, are you your YouTube channel has been largely silent lately. Is it still active? Yeah, it was uh, kind of put on the sidelines for a bit. I was working on a project. I was taking up most of my time and um, just honestly didn't have the time or the energy to film stuff. But I've since left the project, so I'm actually uh, feeling real good about getting the videos up and running. I got two already filmed that I just need to put on, put up, uh, upload. So no, man, you've got to get back in the saddle, man, because I keep telling, bro, you have no idea how many people have reached out to me and have used some of the things you've done, especially back when you were showing people how to do all this wonderful stuff in a balcony apartment. Um, You're still getting hay from that. People are reaching out to me saying, hey, man, I'm glad you brought this guy up. Um, Before we get into all that, why don't you tell a little, let's give him a little bit of background on you. And folks, I'm telling you, he's, let me just tell you ahead of time, he's going to be modest because that's just how he's built. But Eric is also a pimp from way back. 
Permaculture is my passion, but it's also his. Um, so why don't you tell people a little bit about Eric Sider? All right. Um, well, let's see. I'll try, I tried to do the bullet point. So I uh, grew up in the Northeast uh, on the coast, which I think has uh, had a influence on my uh, outlook and whatnot. And then went to university for graphic design. Before I studied permaculture, I actually was studying wilderness survival with Tom Brown Jr. in New Jersey. So that was kind of, it's kind of funny. It's a recurring theme, apparently. Every time I was up for a promotion and it's something I didn't, decided I didn't want to do, I quit and then went and uh, studied something that was, uh, had a life-changing effect. So I was, at the time, back in the early 2000s, probably one of the highest paid busboys in New York City, earning about 250 to $300 a night. Wow. Um, yeah. And then, so I started training to be a waiter, which they were, they would get double that. So, you know, around uh, $500, $600 a night. And I was like, I don't want to do this. And I got the, so I decided to go study wilderness survival instead. Ended up leaving New York. Um, Went on to the opposite coast to live with some friends out in Los Angeles and then where I discovered permaculture. And for me, when I discovered permaculture, because I had a design background and I was really having a hard time, like, how do you how do you use what you learn in wilderness survival in the modern world? It just seemed like too far, too extreme to make it your day to day. So designing with natural systems seem like the perfect uh, the perfect outlet because i like i like designing i like creating things but i was sick of sitting in front of a computer doing of all things toy packaging <laughs> one of the most wasteful design exercises you could come up with so i was working in malibu california at a toy company up for a promotion and i said no thanks i'm gonna go take this pdc uh up in northern california with jeff lawton so that uh, the greening the desert video, like so many people, probably brought you to oh, permaculture. Yeah. It did for me. And uh, during that course, I just connected with Jeff Style uh, straight away, and he said he had a internship program. So that I was okay. Like, you know, growing up, my parents had gardens and stuff, but by the time I was interested, uh, they were onto having a condo with no garden at that point. So I kind of missed that information and so i just felt like i didn't know anything practical so i'm like i need to go i need to go learn how to do this and uh, i'm always a hands-on type of person i can't uh, like reading even videos reading things from book until i do it with my own hands i never truly feel like i understand a new skill so i went down to australia was supposed to be three months i think i was the actual i think i was intern number five and uh, it was very, very early days, and the system and their pro program was still very much in development. So um, there's a lot of, you know, just odd thing. You know, Jeff was basically not on site that much because he was getting pulled in every direction. You know, consultancies and jobs and aid work. And so I think Nadia took a little bit of pity on me not having as much one-on-one uh, -on -one time as I thought I was going to get. So she allowed me to going on an aid trip with them to Vietnam. And uh, yeah, we just got on really well. And basically I left, they let me stay on another three months as a volunteer because uh, originally I was paying money to go. So I sold my car and 
<laughs> basically sold everything that was of value when I was living in Los Angeles and paid for my three months in Australia. So you you got rid of things that most people consider value for something that you thought was a way more value. Yeah, especially in Los Angeles. Good luck doing anything without a car. Yeah, I can so only I was imagine. Like, you know, I, I don't need this. I don't need that. I'm, this is what I want to do. So I'm real, real good at knowing what I don't like to do. And then it tends to be more difficult finding that uh, one thing I really want to do. But. but yeah, you found yourself in Australia. Then all of a sudden you were on aid trips. You said to Vietnam. And I yeah, understand so we you. were in uh, northern Vietnam on a pretty crazy permaculture project that was very well funded by a, um, I forget if it was Dutch or Swedish uh, church group. They, they had so much money, they were relocating traditional Vietnamese buildings from other parts of the country, wow. like taking them apart, putting them on trucks and transporting them like uh, the kind of like the Japanese style buildings where they don't have any metal fasteners. And these are like two story buildings. Wow. Not, yeah, it was. So that was that was pretty amazing. But they were had, a, you know, it was like right near the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They had old bomb craters that were now fish ponds. And wow. the, uh, the young the young guys were, you know, they called it the American War, not the Vietnam War, of course. And they were singing songs about how you the Americans can't defeat us because they don't know how good our beef noodle soup is, basically. Right. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, so what that did that was, lead to? You that get, was my. Oh, sorry. No, you're you're fine. Um, so you're in Vietnam. I mean, that really, I imagine that only spurred on your excitement for permaculture, right? Yeah, I mean, it was just that was my basically introduction to permaculture. It's my first. Uh, basically, I took a, from a PDC to you know Australia to Vietnam, and then while we we're in Vietnam, Jeff got a call that this guy in China wanted him to do a consultancy for like a 10,000 bird sustainable chicken system. So he was like, well, I'm, I got my team here. So you gotta, if you want me to come, you gotta pay for all of us to come. So we went from the mountains of Vietnam to a boardroom in Hong Kong. What? Just like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just with Vietnamese dirt right on you. I mean, <laughs> how did that work? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff had to get a suit made and, in um in the capital city because he didn't have anything you know as they call as i say smart clothes and uh same with me i had to get some slacks and a dress shirt wow so there you are yeah, so and, was... <laughs> wow just like that but it's led on i mean since that time um i understand you've had a lot of back and forth i mean you're a man of extremes and i hope to get into some of that a little bit so you, you do your stint there. So at some point in time, you arrived back to the United States of amnesia. What was that like after having, knowing you, I mean, you had to have been in, I would call it a utopia, um, but you found yourself back here at the United States of amnesia. How did that work out? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, short-sighted, still a little immature, probably thinking, oh, I got I to gotta go back to my life in the U.S. Not, you know, they actually wanted me to, stay on for a, a year longer and uh probably one of the dumbest things i ever did was not do that but it's hard to have uh regrets about decisions if you're happy about where you are in your head you know yeah. so i think you know things kind of come as as they do in life but it was yeah it was you know like thinking basically it was the first time i realized 
bringing your old friends and family along for your journey is not doesn't work out. How do you like, mean? They might love you, they might respect you, and they might be interested in what you're doing, but it's not their priority. So you just, I think that's what happens to everybody when they first discover permaculture. They just think, oh, everyone's just going to know how awesome this is, and they're just going to open their doors for you. And it's just, it's not how it works. Yeah, man, I made that colossal mistake <laughs> three times. So <laughs> I think you're smarter than that, though. So you get back to the U.S. and what you go back to the grind or what's your life look like then? And Eric, yeah, the just, reason I'm asking is because so many people are reaching out right now and they see, they see the life that I do as idyllic and a number of other people because they only see the snapshot. They don't see the grueling part of it. They don't see all the massive and colossal mistakes I made along the way and that I'm still making in some ways or another. Um how did this journey look for you? You get back, you find yourself, you go back and get a regular job again. Did you go back to graphic design? Where did your life lead? Or did you feel like you were rudderless? Uh, I mean, I, you know, the, um, I say the hardest thing for me is chapter 14 and that designer's manual all about community. Like mm. I know intellectually how important and critical it is, but I have the hardest time actually engaging so I'm very much a uh, introvert and a loner myself. So that was, I think that was, I thought it was just going to be easier to just, you know, find people in permaculture that I connected with in the Los Angeles area and just take off from there. But it's, uh, <laughs> it didn't really work out that way. So yeah, I, was, I did started doing some freelance design work, started trying to get involved in whatever was going on in LA. And then, but it just, I don't, nothing was really connecting, nothing, you know, I was basically staying in my friend's couch. And um, then there was a, what was it? There was a permaculture convergence in uh, like Santa Barbara area oh, at, yeah. um, where uh, Warren Brush, if uh, you guys are familiar with him, mm -hmm. and uh, oh, Quail Springs is the their permaculture spot. So they had a they had a demonstration site right next to a gigantic organic carrot farm that they were leasing. And I think they I think they've recently uh, left that property. But so Jeff and Nadia were going there. So I decided to go up there to see them. And that's when they asked me if I'd be willing to go to Jordan and help out on that project. And my first thought was, no, what do I want to go there for? But then I, I just felt like uh, I had a debt to them, you know, because they opened so many doors and uh, were so generous with their time and uh, opportunities that I felt it was the least I could do. So Now, at that point that, in your life, let me, let me stop you for a moment there, Eric, just so everybody knows, when you're talking about Jordan, he made mention a moment ago of the Greening the Desert Project. And is that is that what you're talking about in terms of when they asked you to go to Jordan, was it to manage that project? Uh, well, that the original Greening the Desert video was land that Jeff and Nadi didn't have control over. So unfortunately, that despite all the amazing uh, result they got there, it fell into kind of mismanagement because it it was, you know, under aid project control. And then which, you know, the whole aid, which is a business, the aid business is a whole nother uh, crazy uh, racket. And uh, that was a. Uh, that was another uh, interesting realization, particularly in regards to permaculture aid work. So they, Jeff lost management of that project, and then he ended up buying a new, uh, him and Nadia bought a little three-acre 
sorry, three quarters of an acre property. And that's um, what project I went to manage. So that was, I mean, it was very early days. I think I was a second volunteer. They basically had no fence. They had some trees and some swales uh, using rocks because they had so many rocks. It was like, it looked like the surface of the moon. I mean, it was like they had to bring in gray dust because the it was just rocky and uh, barren and they like they were able to bring in some red soil from Amman, which is the capital city. And even like the, what looked like gray dust, they actually had to bring that on in because it was just so barren and uh, depleted. So yeah, it was, I mean, when I was taking a nap, I was, my options were uh, sacks of concrete or rolls of uh, chain link fence. <laughs> wow. So there you are in pretty rough circumstances. I guess you learned a little bit about water in an environment like that. Or the value. Yeah, of it. I mean, that that was probably the best uh, the best lesson and how important water is in my life. So, and it carries through everything I do and every project. No matter where I am, no matter how much rain someplace gets, my first start is okay. What would I do in Jordan? Can I apply it here? Because I mean, even now, like everywhere across the U.S., people are having drought issues. So. Mm-hmm. You yeah. can't take for granted, you know, historical rain for sure. Well, in that case, I mean, you found yourself now when you ran into Jeff and Nadia in California before you got on that project, were you were you back to the grind working with a regular job or were you doing permaculture projects at that time? Mostly doing freelance graphic design work and then kind of semi-volunteer based uh, permaculture stuff, but not a lot, to be honest. I'm guessing you didn't find a whole lot of joy in that. No, not really. I mean, I, I kind of just, uh, I so just basically kept trying to figure out where I fit in because the whole, you know, my whole desire was to have my own property that I could design as I saw fit, and then trying to, you know, get enough experience to feel comfortable doing consultancy and design for other people. So. And then, bam, you find yourself in Jordan. But you're something of a world traveler, man. You've done, like I said, folks, this guy is very, very, very modest. And you've done projects all around. You want to give us some of the highlights on what you've done? Yes. I mean, Jordan was a big one. I mean, I did some uh, permaculture work in Hawaii on Molokai, which even though technically is the U.S., I think it's pretty obvious that's a should be its own country as far as uh, geography and uh, location and culture wise. Um, then there's a bit of a bit of a hiatus, I guess, where I was uh, in New York. In the, so my brother, uh, he's been in the restaurant industry most of his life. And so he was open up, opening up a cocktail bar. And so I actually went after Jordan, I <laughs> went to New York and opened a cocktail bar. So you're talking about extremes. You're right on point there. So you found yourself, I mean, you were in Vanuatu not long ago and other projects as well. I mean, you've been something like many of us are, something of a nomad. And um, I mean, designing along the way is in this nomadic journey. I mean, were any of these places any place you'd want to settle down? I mean, have you ever thought, I mean, you say you know, you're in Hawaii or maybe Vanuatu or some of these other uh, places that many people would think were, oh my goodness, I mean, paradise. Did you ever think about stopping there and saying, hey, you know what, I think I'm just going to 
I think I'll settle down right here. Have you not found anything so far that you thought, okay, this is it for me? I think of all the places I'd probably go uh, back to Australia and just ro- roll up on Jeff's farm and pitch a little tent in a corner if I, if I had to, uh, if I had to pick somewhere outside of the U S I mean, the only issue there is just, uh, you know, it's so far away. You're basically cutting yourself off from all your friends and family. So that's kind of the one, uh, you know, of course that's still the cost factor at this point moving yeah, to Australia and all that. But uh, I mean, Vanuatu, I mean, I was good friends with the chief of the village, so I think I could uh, I could roll back there if I wanted to. But that's uh, I mean, talk about primitive. They're uh, dirt floors and tin shacks, and maybe most of the people aren't even wearing shoes. So, well, it sounds like but, you're kind of used to that, man, having been in Jordan yeah. and some of these other places. <laughs> I mean, Hawaii. I imagine a lot of people are going barefoot there. Yeah, I mean, in Australia, you see people walking around barefoot in the cities. So it's a that's a whole nother thing. Wow. Man, so because of you, um, we didn't even know it was an option. Because of you, we ended up sending William off to Australia, um, which you know was invaluable in all the information that he he brought back as far as compost making and just about everything else. Chicken tractor on steroids. I mean, you name it. Um, it's been an enormous blessing to us. So have you. Um, right now, you find yourself, I'm not sure how much you want to get into it, but uh, you were on a project a little while ago. And, um, if you're okay, I really want to talk about this part. I want to get into the meat and potatoes of it. Now that people know a little bit about you and know that you're not some Johnny come lately to this, um, you've been involved in a number of, uh, joint projects or projects where let's say there might've been some outside funding or anything of that. One of the big things I'm hearing, Eric, there's so many people thinking, Oh, I'll just forward up with uh, 10 other people, go find some land and be off and running. You have you have a lot of experience. I mean, as as do I to a certain extent. Everything I've ever done has been been a colossal failure when it came to linking up with other people. Um, what can you tell us about that? Because there's a lot of people out there that are going to be listening to this and going to be trusting your judgment as far as that whole venture is concerned. What experiences have you had? And I'm not sure you want to get into it. Maybe you do uh, regarding some of these other projects out there where on paper, it looks like a wonderful thing, but when you get down to brass tacks, maybe not so much. You want to talk about any of that? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's actually the second note I had for things to talk about water first people system second. Yeah. Yeah. So the it, work is easy, uh, man. The work, the, the actual yeah. animals and the plants are easy. That's exactly what, uh, what Jeff says. Plants and the animals are no problem. It's the people that will make or break a project every single time. And most often we get in our, in our own way. So it's, I mean, there's, I mean, people are just imperfect, complicated creatures on the best of times. So adding in conflicting intentions or goals or personalities. And, you know, there's so much, there's so much behavior people do that is subconscious. They don't even aware that they're doing it, you know? So it's, and for me, like I tend to be a, a bit extreme. Once I see qualities in someone I don't like, I'm not someone who has a lot of friends. I have like the friends I do have are kind of friends for life type of thing. So once I see qualities in someone, I'm like, I don't want to spend, waste my time with this person. Yeah. They pretty much cut off, you know, which 
can be a double-edged sword in some ways, but the, um, yeah, I mean, so when I left Texas, which was, I promised myself I was just going to focus on myself, get my own YouTube up, like not jump into other projects with other people. And then this opportunity came along and it honestly, in retrospect, it seemed a little too good to be true, but it, most of the time in aid work, you have willing people, but no resources. So here we had what I thought was, oh, these people, plenty of money. We're going to like be able to do this stuff super fast. And then, you know, just the property, it was, I mean, it wasn't even hard. Like there was a three to four acre pond or dam on site, another small pond, tons of water. It was basically like a fishbowl for good and bad. Like there was so much water coming onto this property. It would have been so easy to throw in a few swales and drought and drought proof and fireproof this property. But again, just people got in the way and how they ultimately wanted to manage the project, the structure that they wanted. They're all about this kind of new, new type of, I don't know if it's new, but basically there was like a, nobody's the boss type of thing. So everybody has a say, which just after a while drove me mad because like, I got to listen to people's opinions who basically don't know what the hell they're talking about. Right. Right. So this consensus model, which yeah. I've run into also, and I've been the victim of as well, where everybody has to agree. And then you'll have some outlier of a person. A lot of times wind up being the biggest obstinate things out there. Um, in every project I've ever done where it involved, let's say family. Um, every time I've done that, it's always been, we're doing a lion's share of the work, but they feel like they get 50% of the decision-making ability. And in your case out there, man, I mean, I understand you hit a couple of bricks. I mean, some massive brick walls, man. Like, Hey, tear out all this cardboard or, I mean, for the dumbest reasons imaginable, do you want to go in any of that? I mean, because this is some of the big stuff people run into because they're thinking they're looking at the times they are seeing the inflation. They know times are tough and they're probably going to get much, much tougher. So they're thinking I'll just forward up with this person over here and we'll, we'll have a go at it. But you have a long storied experience especially one of your most recent ones where you're making, let's just be honest here, Eric, just flat out stupid. You're having to do very stupid things because the people that feel like they have a say on the matter feel like it's something important. Do you want to go into any of that? Yeah. So as uh, I was, you know, recently talking to Jeff and he's, you know, he, I mean, he runs into this stuff all the time. He's like, basically he feels like people are just coming up with excuses not to do something. So, so much, you know, I think I think people just fundamentally don't understand where we are, like what's actually going on in the world. I, I kind of feel like it's, uh, you know, we're a triage patient who's like had their arm severed and there's like the doctors are debating on what color bandage to put on. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that says it right there. Because, you know, like we've already... Uh, abused the term sustainable and now everybody's yeah. getting on to regenerative and it's like we're not even resilient like no. we don't even have food security and everyone's already on oh well everything's got to be regenerative now it's like they just moved on without actually doing anything because it's the new buzzword you know you and know i i, I, I want to hit on that eric because i totally agree i don't i've often said in fact in a recent um talk that i did 
you know, people were going on about sustainability. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not. Okay. Does it seem a good measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society? So no, I'm not going to sustain anything. I do talk about regeneration because that's exactly what I do, but I love the twist you put on it first. We have zero resiliency. So let's maybe let's think about some of that or maybe throw a little bit of dash in here um, instead of jumping. We're going from A to Z without all the letters in between. And the people that seem to speak and preach this the most are the ones that have the least in terms of understanding about it. But that's been your experience, as I understand it, in one of your last projects. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people, particularly from the tech world, you know, they have a lot of money and then they're realizing, oh, wow, like things are looking pretty grim. Let's uh, let's get some land. But they don't have the first clue what to do with land, but they got all these ideas. And of course, anybody who comes from the technology world thinks technology is the answer to save everything. And so they, you know, honestly, they just don't have hands in the dirt experience on what it takes to, you know, even make a garden. And, you know, it's always the people who don't do anything who always have all the suggestions. Bam. <laughs> Brother, that's even if, yeah. even if you don't agree with someone's philosophy, politics, whatever, if you've done anything in your life and you know, they're doing something, you just respect the effort and you can just, you know, agree to disagree on the ideologic stuff. But people who've never done anything except sit in front of a, computer and make comments all day you know they think they know how to do everything and 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 know best how to tell you to do it whatever you're doing or criticize why you're doing something you know and the dreadful part about all that is that when you work under a consensus model like that you you have no choice but to listen to them if they're either a paying the bills or they're in a construct in which they have to be given um voice because, you know, it, it, that's the one thing I think the biggest problem in this world right now is that we, these social media platforms have given, uh, have allowed some of the very stupid a voice. The people that ought to be silent are the ones that are speaking the loudest sometimes. And sadly, when you're in a model like that, um, it doesn't work out so well. The only thing that I've seen that works out well, this consensus model, unless you're absolutely 100% on the same sheet of music, it's going to be hard enough to make it happen anyway, even if you agreed on everything. Uh, methods, techniques, all those things are going to vary. But when you have a group of people that are involved in this thing and it looks good on paper, it looks good in every single way, and then all of a sudden you put foot to butt, and then, like you said, the people, I've been there, bro. That's why I'm so glad you're talking about it right now because um, in one of the first projects I ever did, we were teamed up with other people, and this lady who felt who didn't know her butt from a hole in the ground we're doing this back then i was more in tune with uh preparedness than permaculture didn't quite understand this is years and years ago didn't quite understand so we were teamed up with these folks on a uh, preparedness level and we're like okay we're going to get out here get started blah 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 we're off and running and bro what do i catch her doing she's over there planting pansies and she's planting all these pretty flowers and i'm like okay and so as a wise guy that I am, I go over there, hmm, I wonder what those taste like on the salad. And she, you know, she throws her hands in the air. But this was the same lady that had to be involved with every single step of the way, even though she had no fundamental fundamental understanding of anything, had never grown anything in her life. And here it is. I have to because she's part owner of this thing. I got to sit here and listen to this bat 
sit here and tell me how to do something that she has absolutely no idea how to do. So you found yourself mixed up in a lot of these things, man. Um, okay, so let me ask Eric Sider, what would be the best method in going about dealing with that? How would you deal with that? Okay, let me let me give you a scenario. You find yourself teamed up uh, with a bunch of other people, and let's say you're going to pimp out this project for, you know, they all agree, you know, let's do permaculture. And you have somebody that says, let's put the permaculture over here. That's That's like an inside <laughs> joke because I've actually heard that. Um, what do you think is the best model to use? I mean, clearly this consensus thing doesn't work out. What would you suggest? I mean, I don't know. For me, it's just, I'll see you later. I got more yeah. important things to do, but <laughs> that might not be the, uh, you know, like mo money's never my motivation. So like I gave up, you know, pretty good money to, for this project. And I was like, you know, I got my motivation is I want to put these systems in the ground and there's people that, are ready to do this and like i'd rather go help them you know so my what i would do probably might not work for a lot of other people but that brings me back to the best the best thing about the study in the wilderness survival is it removed that fear out of my decision making so not that i'm at all like some great survivalist or anything like i'm basically competent at best just because you know, I don't practice enough, but it just, the knowledge of knowing the basics of how to survive anywhere is like, you know what, what's the worst case that happened? I'm homeless and I just walk into the woods and give it a go. Right. So that's, you know, that's why I'm like, there's so much fear. We have so much fear because so much of our self-worth is still wrapped up in financial wealth and possessions. And you realize how much of your, what you actually want to do in your life and, you know, like, I don't have kids, you know, so it's, I can't speak to, that's that would be a whole different, a whole different decision making when you have young kids and other responsibilities. So I'm a bit privileged in that way. Well, if you find yourself in this project, though, I mean, is there any advice you can give to these people? I, I think maybe you might have just given it regarding these people that have forwarded up with others about how best to navigate that situation. Have you found any way to successfully navigate these difficult situations. Um, like you said, okay, I'm out. Bam. Is, is there any time where you were able to make a go of it and make it work? I mean, I, you know, I've made plenty of compromises along the way. That's why I was just like, you know what? No one, basically there was the way it was set up. There was kind of like a, like a, a decision-making council of people and one of which funded the whole thing. And then there was like the day-to-day -day people that I was working with. So there's about five of us. And one, only one of those people really was actually interested in permaculture. So there was a lot of it was just a communication issues, not actually setting, which, you know, I think actually having a clear vision and what, how you're going to go about it. And then expressing that to everyone and say, this is what we're doing. Not that like you're going to dictate you ain't going to micromanage, but there has to be a clear vision and like how you're going to develop this land. And the problem was they kept changing their mind. Like at first it was all about biodynamics and then that didn't work out. So I came in and then it was all about permaculture. And then clearly like the way I wanted to go about developing the land was rubbing people the wrong way. So then they just kept looking and then they would just keep going out there and try and cherry pick in different 
different methods from different people. And so ultimately, from my perspective, that was the biggest issue is just there was no clear vision. So then how so that were when there's a leadership vacuum, you know, people are just going to do whatever they want. And like stronger personalities are going to make themselves known and decide, oh, they don't know what they're doing. I'm going to do this instead. So that was ultimately how I felt the main issue was. But as far as I mean, I could have, you know, kept working and like, you know, just kept kind of like diluting what I was trying to do. But I just personally, I was like, I'm not, I don't, it's a waste of my time to be here five days a week, commuting an hour each way. So I just decided I'm going to move on because I had the, I, you know, I was able to make that decision. But if you don't, if you can't leave a situation like that, like say you bought in and you don't have any other option, I guess it would, I mean, it's, to be diplomatic, you really maybe even say, okay, let's, you want to do something and I want to do something. If you can do it side by side and see what result you get, you know, like ultimately results are the only thing that convince anybody. And even then the the effort required for the result, they might not agree with, you know? So I think it's, you know, trying to be super, super diplomatic, you know, and uh, trying to validate, everyone's opinion even if you think it's worth you know less than the dust on your shoes kind of thing is if you want you know like if you really want to stick it out basically as uh, jeff and bill said dogged persistence is the number one quality to make any project work so yeah i totally agree on that score but i gotta know most uh no most people you know they might just get tired of you know coming up with things that don't work you know i don't know it really kind of depends on like the classic permaculture answer, it depends, but well, I would say trying to do the, the smallest system you can and just get a result. Like, you know, like Bill said, go garden the square foot outside your door, get a result and keep expanding. So you might want to do things a lot faster and a lot bigger, but you just, you just have to do everything you can, the best you can and get the best result. And then at some point, if, all your results don't make a difference, then you might need to think about moving on. So the moral to the story is, is don't team up with anybody. No, 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 those things can obviously work. I think the best model is um, at least the only model that I've seen that works is when everybody has their own little fiefdom and you mutually, you work as an agorist sort of system where everybody does their own thing. And then sooner or later, you know, Hey, we collaborate on certain things, but everybody has their own little fiefdom. Maybe there are common areas. I have yet to see anything of a long-term. I, I honestly, at least in America, I haven't seen anything personally that made a whole lot of sense in the long term that worked out. In fact, the people that live near me in this um, eco village, I won't say the exact name of it. Um, I was having a discussion with one of the movers and shakers out there, man. And he is ready to everybody coming in from the outside walks in there or drives in there or, you know, takes a tour through that place. And they think, Oh my goodness, this place is paradise. And what they don't realize is that nearly everybody in there is at each other's throats, that they want to strangle each other. And this thing is like on a knife's edge as to whether or not it's going to work. So folks, if you're listening to this, one of the biggest things I want you to take away from this interview is these collaborations. It can be the best or the worst thing that's ever happened to you, but historically it winds up not working out. I mean, Anything I've ever done with my family has always been an utter disaster. 
complete utter disaster. I mean, there's no salvaging. In fact, the relationship is soiled to this day. And all it takes is one bully that has to call the shots on everything that knows, like Eric was saying a moment ago, very the least about it. Now, Eric, I got to ask, after having done and managed these systems and people all over the planet, I got to know and be perfectly honest here because it might be a rhetorical question. Was it harder to deal with the people in the United States of amnesia on these projects or harder in some of these places overseas? Oh, the Americans are the worst, <laughs> hands down. And uh, even when I was in Australia, you know, I've been there two different times and saw two different iterations of the internship program. Always, always 100%, the ones who always had the biggest problems were always from America. Doesn't like whether it's practical, like understanding electricity, like understanding running off a off-grid solar system, like facilities, like people in America who haven't been anywhere else in the world have no idea how how much stuff we have. Like even quote unquote another first world like Australia. No one has as much stuff as we have. Like you walk into any Walmart, Super Target, anything it's absurd how many like how much stuff is there you know so it's uh yeah that was uh you know sorry, sorry to be that bold but no, uh, i no, think I, just i was hoping you i think other that. i think people like before you know we talking about this uh going to college student loans all this stuff like you should be required to leave the country before you're allowed to go into university i think for americans would probably make a world of difference you know eric i couldn't agree more i i knew it was something of a rhetorical question i don't know that i'd ever asked you that before but you know having done some work around the world myself and i look at the spoiled nature and you know some people are not going to like what i'm saying here but by and large i think even william said as much when he was over there that the number one problem the pro if you had to pick out a problem child nine times out of ten it was going to be an american where we come from this place of abundance and then we get to a place where we don't see it as abundant. It's very abundant, but for some reason our Western eyes don't allow us to see it. And all of a sudden we feel like our, you know, American privilege or whatever the case may be, it just takes over. Or we're just honestly, man, we are raising kids that are spoiled, freaking rotten, man. They don't know what it's like to get up, have to go do some legit stuff. They feel like maybe they ought to just be given a, a living in this world. And I got a real problem with that. So, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. So if the point being, whether it's Americans overseas or Americans in America, <laughs> you're setting yourself up for, for failure, nephew. That's the way I see it. I mean, it, it seems to me, folks, I'm... Look, I know you're not hearing good news out here for the most part when it comes to this podcast. You're thinking, oh, I'm going to hook up with Jimmy down the way, or I found this person on this particular app or whatever, and it's going to be bliss. Look, I highly recommend the only the only model that I've ever seen that actually worked in this way is when there's like, okay, this is your spot. This is my spot. We collaborate on some things together, and we can mutually exchange this and that. But outside of that, I have yet to see a long-term project that actually where everybody's getting along just fine and everything works out well. And having been down that road a number of times, um, yeah, it, it it's not great. It's not wonderful, at least not by my experience. Um, Eric, 
Where do you see, look, man, I can go on forever and a day about all the problems that are going on in this world. And there are many, there are legion, no doubt about that. Um, where do you see it going right now? And is there a permaculture solution? You're out in California right now. Um, clearly you were talking about in the beginning, I want to swing back to this water thing. Clearly everywhere in the West is in some sort of drought. They're even talking about drought in the Northeast to a certain extent, or at least they're heading that way. Do we have permaculture solutions that could solve a lot of this? Oh, for sure. If I, I just had one uh, other thing to talk about the people systems, like, like Bill said, you can't, two people can't garden the same spot. Like you inevitably, someone's going to pull out what you planted and likewise. So I totally agree that, uh, you need autonomy over something. If you want to have a council and a consensus over community area, that's fine. But you have to have at minimum your own garden where you call the shots and you get your food in. And then, you know, you can play hippie with the rest of the property if you want. But, you know, and like, I'll fully hold my hand up. Like maybe that structure is how humanity evolves. And, you know, maybe I'm just, uh, you know, like a spiky bastard, like, uh, it's like Blackberry coming up, trying to secure the land. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm fully fine with being, as Jeff says, a main, a rough ass mainframe designer, you know, because we could spend a lifetime just doing mainframe. So, um, but yeah, there's a hundred percent. There's uh, like, you know, like Bill said, the problems of the world are increasingly complex, but the solutions are emba- embarrassingly simple. Like we already have all the technology and all the knowledge to fix everything we've screwed up. We just need the, the will to do it. So, you know, like some new technology is always the shiny new thing. Somebody who still wants to squeeze out some investment, hoard some more, you know, financial wealth, lock up some technology, you know, like I just saw that Bill Gates is still going on about reinventing the compost toilet. You know, spending millions of dollars. They started in 2011. They still can't produce anything better than a five-gallon bucket and some sawdust. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are. We know the price of everything and the value of nothing. So with with this drought situation, uh, another rhetorical question. How? Okay, let's say Eric, instead of Gavin Newsom, is the governor of California. And you're realizing you have, uh, first of all, common sense. And second of all, you have this permaculture background. How would you go about, is there a way, another rhetorical question, is there a way to fix this drought out there? If there were, and you were governor, how would you go about doing it? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's not even that complicated. It's just, for one thing, there's too many damn divergent ideas on what how you should do anything in California. That's why no one can get anything done. But the problem you have now is we're in a you're in a flood and drought regime. So you have which is a pretty big indicator of a climate out of balance. You know, you can say whatever you want about human caused climate change, global warming, whatever. But if humans were living in harmony with the planet and we're still having issues, then I might you know look for other ideas. But until we stop clearing out every ecosystem and forest that you can see, then you're going to get climate out of whack and what you're going to get is everything happening all at once you're going to have like uh, we just had um at the project i was working on we had the wettest december in history and the driest january in history so you're getting all the rain and smaller and smaller storms 
And if you can't capture it and soak it in, all it's doing is running off into the ocean and it's taking all that soil with it. So most of Northern California and most of California, because Southern California only exists because of the water they get from Northern California. Otherwise it'd look pretty much like Arizona is the snow. They're not getting as much snow. They're getting more rain than snow. So that snow basically acts like a swale. It's like a slow release water over the course of the spring. So when you get all this water at once, you need to slow it down, soak it in and spread it out. And therefore, I think it's also just a fundamental ignorance on how hydrology works. Like now you have out here, you got farmers versus environmentalists. So you got people who want water running in the streams. So therefore you can't grow your food. And it's, I mean, it's definitely more complicated than that, but that's the narrative, you know, it's like, Oh, you want food? Farmers need water. Oh, you want fish and salmon? You gotta, farmers can't have water. We need water for the streams. And it's, you know, for one thing, just drive up Highway 5 in the Central Valley and you'll just see all the worst forms of industrial agriculture, feedlots, you know, like thousands of cows, orchard, endless monocrop orchards, no mulch anywhere. So, and just open canals of water in the desert, which you're probably evaporating more water than you're using. So just idiotic water use. I mean, you know, we still have like compost toilets should be mandatory in all of California, or at least gray water, using gray water to flush your toilet, not drinking water. And why people still think they should have golf courses and lawns that there's like my neighbor here in Sacramento, he's got a grass lawn, water's all the time. I've never seen anybody but the guy mowing it step foot on that lawn. Wow. So it's just like, I don't even, we wouldn't even have a water problem despite, you know, the historic drought if we just weren't so stupid with our water use. Would you, would you so, do something of a Manhattan project, you know, in terms of, um, I mean, if you had that power, let's say you were the governor, why couldn't you? on, you know, state land or whatever the case may be, could you do something of a Manhattan project in terms of swale building, in terms of water capturing? It just seems to me that so much, uh, having been there before, man, it I don't see just like every other place in the United States of amnesia, I don't see anything capturing. I don't see anything capturing that water, at least for a little while, deflecting it or amplifying it. I don't see any of that happening out there. No, that I seems mean, to me, wouldn't that be a sensible solution? Yeah, I mean, it's probably the perfect climate and geography for just swale the whole state i mean i would have every earth moving machine available just running 24 7 and you know you might get a hold of it like we got they're still putting in developments all the time here in sacramento i'm like where are you gonna get the water for these people they don't you know they're just new development new development and it was same thing in texas i remember driving a hundred miles out into the country, they were doing road work the whole way. Like you couldn't get someone to come to your property to put in a swale for like under three grand. Cause they were just building roads out to new settlements everywhere. So it's, I mean, it's like we have all the resources. I mean, we have employment for generations, just fixing the damage we've done. We just need to, you know, good luck getting anyone to agree on anything, but you know, that's uh yeah i mean that's pretty much it just and then the other thing you know which uh comes back to california is everybody 
just decided there was a certain time point in history where we should try and return to. So now, you know, like controlled burning is everybody's buzzword out here, which, you know, it may be effective at mitigating some of the wildfire, but you're not, you're just going to be stuck in that fire regime. And it's like, okay, so let's go back 200 years. Okay, let's go back a thousand years. Let's go back 5,000 years. Like what, this is like an arbitrary time frame when you decided that's, that's okay. Or back to like, you know, this is an invasive species. Okay, like you go back far enough in history, humans are invasive, right? Well, I don't know. I, I guess I don't see it that way. I see it that we could work with it and not feel like we have to dominate anything. I think you can absolutely work with any environment and not decimate it or destroy it. Like they're talking controlling controlled burning back there. Here's an idea. Um, okay, bring out some of the old dead underbrush or whatever. That's all well and good. But guess what? You could do a you could do away with a lot of that just by running goats on the property. You could run goats and knock out a lot of that scrub brush underneath. Um, put fertility back into the soil. Have them move on, just you know, mimicking to a certain extent what the buffalo used to do, at a smaller scale. You could, if you don't like goats, you could use hair sheep. Um, certain breed of cows, you can do the same exact thing. It just seems to me that the overwhelming, man, that Mullison quote, man, that really ought to be on a shirt. That the problems become more complex, but the the answer is incredibly simple. We know everything we need to do out there. I just don't understand. Well, it's not that I don't understand. I understand the powers that shouldn't be don't want to don't want to take these uh, simple solutions. But I got to ask, going right back to that project you were on, were you? Were you just unable to convey the best way of going about, like the property you were working on, where you have this consensus model? I know that you have a you have a very good gift of communicating in such a way to where any dummy should understand it. So, was it just straight up obstinance in which they couldn't see the value in what you and, and how you wanted to manage the water and what you wanted to do on this land? Because I think that's only a microcosm of the bigger problem, maybe in California. If you can't get a handful of people to agree on that project. Almost certainly it's never going to happen on the statewide level, much less a county or anything else. I mean, what what was the biggest holdups do you see? Was it idiotic political ideologies? Was it something they heard some greenies say that they had no idea that they were repeating? What was the biggest holdup? Because you were telling me about the project. You even sent me pictures, man, about some of the plumbing job that was out there. And you can't make this up. Um, what do you think with the... What was the holdup? Because I know that you're making decisions from a pragmatic standpoint. I think that's probably the the biggest issue is basically no one prioritized the practical fundamentals. They just, you know, they would just get excited about, you know, like aesthetics was like, honestly, aesthetics was driving most of the decisions. And then this kind of like, pseudo spiritual like idea of how the land should be approached or you know like which i can understand to some extent but i think it mostly has just came down to the speed at which i was comfortable like i was like you, you know you only get so many rainy seasons so i'm like we need to do this now and i just uh i think i i just got frustrated and annoyed and i just didn't want to play along anymore like i could have like i said i could have stuck it out and you know we probably could have got somewhere 
where we wanted to go in the end. But I was just like, you know, it's not worth me. It's not worth my time right now. Like it's more important things to do. And like one example. So we had this four acre, three or four acre dam. Um, and there was actually a pipe through the wall already that, it, I mean, it wasn't very deep. It was maybe like a foot to 18 inches below the water level when it was full. And so I, there's so many ridiculous laws and restrictions on what you can do with water and water rights and which is a whole nother debate. But I was just kept going like, how can I use this water? Cause it's just, and the other thing too, is when it would overflow, there was this massive concrete canal that PG&E owned and they would just sell the water off to whoever. So it's every drop of water that left this property went into a concrete channel owned by PG&E and was sold off to, you know, the highest bidder. So which made it more important, like slow down and soak in every single thing you can, because once it leaves the property, it's no longer in service to the environment. So I finally figured out a way to connect up this, uh, this overflow pipe. And then I had a little swale I did in the kind of orchard food forest area. So we spent like all day connecting this up and we just like, we're letting it run. And I explained, I'm like, listen, this whole water level is going to drop another 18 inches, like minimum. So this thing's basically going to turn itself off. And at that point, they're probably going to like reintroduce the water restrictions. So, you know, technically we're not supposed to be doing it anyway at that point. And so it was just dumping you know it's like trickling into the swale and it maybe moved 10 feet down the swale in like three or four days and one of the guys who like couldn't help but tell everybody how he grew up on farms yet didn't want to be a farmer but then wanted to tell everyone how they should be farming of course and if it wasn't his way it wasn't the right way kind of thing like was not not curious not interested in any other way to do something and uh, that was like one of the main issues I felt he was like constantly undermining what I was trying to do and like never asked me why I was doing anything, just assumed it wasn't the way he would do it. He, his, he complained that it was going to, he was afraid it was going to turn into a swamp. Wow. And I like, I couldn't even get mad. I just wanted to start laughing. I'm like, you know what they call a swamp in the desert? An oasis. I'm like, I, I'm like, please, God, let me have a swamp in Northern California. Like, that means I don't got to worry about irrigation for the rest of my life. Man. I can have Janapas on the side of a hill. Like, that would be amazing. So that was the first issue. So like, oh, like, we should turn it off. You know, we should we need a discussion on how it might affect the the pond and all this stuff. And really, it was just they were probably afraid it was dropping the level too fast. So like their little beach that they, they spent $5,000 bringing in sand to have a beach. What? Yeah. I'm not even going to tell you how much they spent on boulders. You would fall off your chair. Oh, but hold on. then what? <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. No, I'm not. Okay, I was I'm waiting for a punchline, bro. Okay, so the, you're legit. I mean, you're you're not kidding around. I'm waiting for you to <laughs> No, and that was fine. No one's like, okay, yeah. That's so five G's on cost. rocks, probably fifty thousand on boulders. Yeah, probably I mean not I think they I think it was like ten to fifteen grand per rock. You got and one of them one of them only had ten percent of it above the water. But they wow. were special rocks, you know, from the special river. So. Oh, deep rocks, yeah. Yeah, deep yeah. rocks. Um and then there was another, you know, 
great guy, like loved him a lot. He was a indigenous elder, lived downstream. And then he, the last straw was basically like he, he thought our little diversion, which at that point, the water level dropped below the pipe anyway. So it wasn't even on anymore. He thought it was reducing the, his little stream because there was this one part that would go across a bridge and into his property because it used to all be one property at some point. And I was like, no one, basically no one had a fundamental understanding of you have consecutive years of sub average rainfall. Everything's going to dry out a lot faster. Everything's mm-hmm. going to drop fat. You know, it's like the whole bloody States having a drought. It's not just because we had a little trickle. So I was just like, this is the most basic fundamental principle of permaculture right. that I'm trying, I'm having issues with. So that was pretty much the, the last straw for me. And like you said, also, Eric, nobody seems to understand the value of covering the soil. You got orchards and monocrop orchards everywhere, and nobody even understands. And you see the same exact thing in every single monoculture orchard, whether it's in North Carolina, where I am, or in California, where you are. You're wondering why... You're wondering why drought affects you so much. Well, find me any part of healthy nature that that isn't covered, you know, and why they don't understand that in orchard settings. I'll never understand it. But when you I mean, have it was a, I'm sorry, go ahead. Like, I, I mean, I, I was, uh, you know, and that was, of course, something I always did, like heavy mulch, like 12 inches, like minimum to start is like where I. Oh, yeah, I do if I can. And it would be amazing how damp the soil would be even with minimal water and compared to, yeah. I mean, what? it's, it's not complicated. Like, like we were saying, all this stuff's easy. It's just, I think people just want a complicated solution. I never stuff. understood it, man. It's uh, yeah. Here we are looking for complicated solutions, man. And, and honestly, just look at nature. You, it, it didn't even, you don't even have to go that far to find out that solution, you know, go to any decent forest, go look around. What do you see on the ground? There's something down there, whether it's leaf litter, whether it's, you know, I just don't understand why it's so difficult. So I guess the better question is, I, I guess I've been, I, I got to wrap this up in a little bit, Eric, but I do want to know, do you plan on staying out there? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe give some of us out there who don't already know, uh, man, what's it like out there? I hear there's a, a serious homeless problem. Why on earth are you in California right now? You ought to be on the first thing smoking to somewhere to Vanuatu, bro. I think if that my choices are California, Vanuatu, uh, some of the other places, maybe even Jordan, I might be on the first thing smoking. Are you are you looking to find your own little piece of Idaho out there, so to speak, or are you looking to go to Idaho? <laughs> no, I'm I mean, I definitely don't see a, a long term a long term solution in California, unfortunately. I mean, I just you know, every chance we get, we just do the stupid thing. So it's looking grimmer and grimmer. And, um, uh, I mean, I definitely, I mean, I'm basically here for family commitments. So, um, but I'm definitely got one eye, uh, in other areas, you know, if opportunities come up, I definitely would, uh, would be down for that. I don't, I mean, at the same time, there's not, there's not like a perfect place anywhere. You know, you're going to have issues. I mean, they, you know, obviously, if you can have more regular rainfall, that alleviates a lot of problems. But at the same time, you might have a lot of unsavory people in around you. So, brother, I'll tell you what, there's this uh, I know a place you might consider. Um, there's this temperate rainforest on the other side of the country 
worst thing you got to worry about is some hillbilly running out of the woods holding a banjo. (laughs) 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 No, no, it's not like that at all, man. Um, You know, like I will say, as you know, a comedian once said, if Ned Beatty couldn't get down that river, pretty sure Eric Sider can't either. So, uh, (laughs) uh, bro, you got to get out of that place, man. That place sounds like a total nut job. I know there's, you know, honestly, Asheville, North Carolina, ain't too much different anyway. Um, I'm sure it's not far away. I mean, but also you got a serious homeless issue out there as well. And it's only going to get worse. I mean, do you have a, this is like a question you're probably not expecting, but um, I know you're a forward thinker. Where do you see that place headed, man? I mean, do you see any improvement out there or do you see it degenerating? Well, like I was talking about before, you can't, even if you want to make rational decisions, there's someone who's going to have a problem with it. You can't, you got, I mean, the homelessness is just at it. I mean, it's been out of control for years, but it's just, you literally have every square meter that is not a private property. Someone will pitch a tent. Someone will just have a grocery cart, a crap strewn about. And then you try to clear it out. And then there's a whole bunch of advocates for the homelessness just saying, oh, they should be able to camp wherever. I'm like, okay, bring them to your yard. Wow. You know, it's like all the people who don't want you to do anything, they never come up with solutions. They just want to stop you from doing stuff. And so I don't, you know, like there's obviously I got all the empathy in the world for what, you know, obviously nobody wants to be living in those situations, but it's just, it's not healthy. It's not good for anybody. Like there's, people camping all along the American river here. There are constantly fires happening, whether intentional or accidental, who knows you got, I mean, I was just visiting friends in Los Angeles and I mean, that's like homeless Mecca of the U S downtown LA It you, everywhere you walked, it just smelled like human urine. And, but wow. you got sky rise, like expensive penthouse apartments going up and you got somebody, you know, what looking out for, human poop on the streets it's just like there's just such a disconnect for anything that is a rational way of governing that i don't you know i don't know unfortunately if i'm putting on my cynical pessimistic hat it would say people aren't going to make rational choices unless that's the only choice they have wow (laughs) if it comes down to a rational choice (laughs) like if you have if you still have the grocery store to go buy your food you're going to go there instead of making sure your garden you know like at least as far as we're talking about you know majority of people until like the easiest the easier choice is the right choice i think we're just keep making the dumb choice well it sure is curious how the crucible of really hard times has a way of correcting that sort of thing and uh, i think we're headed there man um I, I know we're up for some rough times which is a lot of why i cover a lot of preparedness these days within these things and how we can go about mitigating some of this stuff how we can take waste streams whether it's you know refuge from a rest refuse from a restaurant you know something they think is trash and use it and make treasure whether it's a homeless guy on the street that you could compost or whatever the case may be. You didn't catch that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. thought, I, at first, I thought you meant the homeless dude was composting. But yeah, that's what like, I'm saying. Yeah, if we could compost the homeless guy. No, I'm just kidding, y'all. Don't No hate mail. I'm just joking. I just wanted to see if he, he was still with me. And uh, no, I mean, there are some reasonable, good, easy, 
you know, talking about those easy solutions, you know, like Jeff's thing that he came up with the chicken tractor on steroids. We've been, you know, playing this thing out for years here. I mean, the solution is simple. You can raise all of your birds. You People think I'm being hyperbolic when I say this. I didn't invent the system. Jeff Lawton did. We've just adapted it to, to the needs that we have. And people think I'm being, being hyperbolic when I say, quite literally, you could feed the entire world with this. If you had enclaves of people doing this, where you're literally going, either you're producing it from your own place, which almost certainly from a single family residence, you're never going to do. But there are plenty of residents or restaurants out there that are willing to, to work with you, even on the sly, to be able to raise all of your animals. I mean, for crying out loud, I raised just recently six pigs and I can't even tell you how many chickens all this while making the best compost on the planet for my property using a system that is honestly not that difficult to do you yourself did it out there in California how was it working out yeah I mean honestly the first uh first time I ever set up chickens you know bit of advice from you and your videos I mean it honestly I was even lazier than you and it still worked like a treat and uh I didn't even bother getting uh, outside food scraps because for me, it was just more about time than money. Like money finances wasn't an issue. So I was using, I was just buying feed and using it um, in the, I would just like you did ferment it overnight and dump it in the middle of the compost cage. And like, you know, don't stress out if you feel uncomfortable or you don't have the time to go and collect food scraps or you don't honestly need to do it from a financial standpoint, just buy feed and the system still works. You're still, everything works fine. Whether you're using commercial feed, whether you're getting food scraps, like once they're off and running, you're still getting amazing compost. You're still getting eggs, you know, you're getting meat if you so choose. So, and uh, I'm, that's actually what I'm most excited about now is I'm going to do the urban version, which is uh, 10 to 12 birds in, uh, you know, a little under 200 square feet at the house here in Sacramento. And I honestly, I mean, from my perspective, I'm like, you've answered the question. You can feed your birds for free or a little bit of effort. So what I'm really interested in, can I grow or harvest enough plants and material to feed the chickens without? Because, I mean, there is a, you know, at some point, I don't, <laughs> I don't think we're in danger of getting there. But if everybody was trying to use food scraps to feed their chickens, we wouldn't have enough food scraps. I so totally we need agree. To, I think the next step is how do you grow excess food or how do you harvest excess food to m- replace that, uh, those food scraps? So that's, uh, I got a couple ideas and a lot of it involves water plants. So I'm that, excited to see how that goes. I would love to hear how you're going to do that. But one of the methods we've incorporated now, instead of, because I'm not, I'm trying to be less reliant, even in terms of, um, for pigs, it's going to be a little trickier because you're going to need quite a bit more. Birds, I think you have a greater ability of doing that. And one of the methods we're doing, actually it has been working out with the pigs, is that we use the methods of Sean and Beth Doherty in the uh, in their book, The Independent Farmstead, where, my goodness, like for example, Michelle got a handful of Trombuccino seeds from her years back. And I think it was maybe five seeds. Those five seeds, Eric, it, it will produce a uh, squash that is unbelievably large can grow in just about any soil. Um, you can eat it. Your chickens can eat it, but it grows. It is so abundant 
And they wrote an entire book on how to do this. Now, it all surrounds itself around the family milk cow. And I've been fusing some of their ideas with some of Jeff's ideas and some of some of the others. Um, beautiful systems, working out great for us. And it's just trying to dial it in about how much you need to grow. And another awesome thing about their system is that everything they picked out by and large can sit on the shelf. I mean, like a, you take, for example, a Kushaw squash. When you harvest it, that thing's good for about a year at room temperature. And so is everything else they pick there. So they leave it in the barn, and then they break it off as they need it to feed their animals. But when you combine that with a system like the chicken tractor on steroids, we've already done, like going back to what you said, when it comes to um, when it comes to feeding your birds within that system, let's say you're using conventional feed. I guess I neglected to tell you this. I mean, but typically, and because I've done it this way, just to see what I could get away with and still have them lay eggs. Um it's typically in a regular system without the chicken tractor on steroids, it's quarter pound per bird per day. But we found out that you can actually back their feed off instead of a quarter pound. You can break it down to an eighth of a pound. And ultimately I can still have them lay at a 16th of a pound per day. Now they're going to be some hard working birds and they're not really, it's not going to work out so well for birds that are exclusively meat birds, but heavens to Murgatroyd, it works out well with birds. So you're using a 16th of a pound per bird per day within that system as long as you ferment it. That's what we figured out so far. So even when you do it, the, the amount of feed, if you are using conventional means, is considerably less. And I'm sorry, bro, I, I totally forgot to tell you that. But you know what? Your compost pile is happy anyway because all that excess feed that they didn't get to obviously made its way into being compost. So there are oh. some extraordinary ways out there, man, to get around this stuff. Yeah, and I just, uh, I mean, the garden I got going now, I mean, it's been just super lazy, minimal input because, you know, I've been so busy with the other project, but I just harvested a zucchini. It was three pounds. I'm like, there's, <laughs> you know, wow. a day's worth of food there you go. <laughs> for, the, for the birds right there. So I think, you know, that's what I'm most excited about is, you know, let's, uh, let's see what, you know, trialing different, uh, different things, harvesting different things. And, you know, like, don't be afraid to screw up. Like that's how the best lessons come anyway, you know? So it helps all of us, the more little, uh, like, uh, Jeff says, happy little accidents and sad little failures. Yeah. We all move, you know, we all move ahead. And so many of us are afraid to make those mistakes. I mean, just don't make anything that's going to kill anybody, but you want to avoid those things, but honestly, there's a lot of them. You're not going to have the advantage. Um, it's like Jeff Lo or uh, Joel Salatin says, you know, if it's worth doing, then it's worth doing poorly at first. And with the understanding that you should grow as you do something, you should get a little better at it with time. Um, and even now, regardless of how many times I've done this chicken tractor on steroids, there's always some little caveat that I didn't know in – in all honesty, um, I really don't know the full extent of how far this thing can be taken. I don't know the full ex I don't know how far it can go because every single variation that I've done with it has been extraordinary. And it all came out of Jeff's brain. And of course, he got the inspiration from Carl Hammer, all of which are, you know. But the cool thing about it is, is now here you are trying your variation of a more clandestine, not clandestine, but a more, um, you know, um, I imagine yours is going to be not as mobile it's going to be within a a run right or is it going to be mobile in your 
urban setting. No, the urban, the urban one's like a set pen. So it's right. basically like, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can set it up some variation, but basically you have a pen that the uh, chickens stay in and you bring all the material to them, which is, uh, there's actually a great video on the neighbors in the greening the desert site who they started on bare. They literally chipped a flat, uh, terrace at a rock, bare rock and started. And after three months, just using that, the chicken tractor on steroids, they were had a full garden. Like they were off and running. I mean, in Jordan, like, you know, I think they get like four inches of rain a year on average. Like it couldn't be a harsher, <laughs> a harsher climate and limited resources. So that's, I mean, that was, you know, the ultimate, uh, lesson outside of water was like, if it works here, like you don't got to an excuse, uh, excuse my, uh, <laughs> language there, but, uh, you have no excuse if in anywhere in the America, like there's so many more resources and benefits to do it. So I think that, you know, like we've kind of hit on some grim stuff. I don't want to, I don't want to leave it there. So I would say just, you know, whatever you got to do, you got to buy something from Amazon, you got to buy plants and miracle grow from home depot to get started like don't worry about it it's not going to be perfect it's just whatever you need to do to get started just do it yeah i couldn't agree more um so do you have a so at this point right now i mean i'm not gonna i was gonna ask you for a prognostication as far as where you think th think things are going but i'm not trying to leave this on a grim note um <laughs> but what do you see in your future? Uh, maybe near and far. I mean, that's, I know that's kind of an open-ended question, but I just want to know clearly judging by what I hear, I don't think you intend to retire there or spend the rest of your life out in California. Do you have your eyes on some other places? Yeah. I mean, if, uh, I mean, I definitely do have my eyes on other places a little more easterly and, uh, I think the most important thing is, you know, no man is an island and you're not going to, you know, you could have the best homestead, the most sustainable system in the world, but there's always somebody with more guns, as they say. So unfortunately, it really comes down to getting a good group of people around you that you can work together with and take care of yourselves, you know, because I think uh, ultimately we're going to need as many safety nets as we can, because if things go the trajectory they're going, you know, like you're gonna, people are going to be displaced. They're not going to know what the hell to do. And they're going to need somewhere to go to be safe, to learn how to operate in this new world. Cause obviously it's, I think it's pretty clear to me, to you, to most people that the way we're operating now can't continue. So yeah. we need a new, we need a new way to approach life on this planet and the people who are already doing it, you're going to be leading the charge. So, we need to, uh, like I said, we need we need the safety nets to make the fall a little less extreme, I say. Yeah, well, I think, like you said, we know the solutions aren't all that difficult, and we're going to have to forward up and come up with some, um, some better ideas than we've had. Folks, um, I want to thank Eric so much for being here. Um, I also want to thank you for checking it out. Like I said, go back and check out that new platform I talked about. It'll be linked down below. Also, remember, tip a pimp. So, y'all, until next time, this is going to do it for us. Stay alert. Stay alive. <laughs>